Let us go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Holy Father, we are blessed to assemble here in your name. Thank you for your presence and power today. We come to you as a weak and needy people. Your word tells us that apart from you we are nothing. But in you we are supernaturally gifted, uh, useful for your glory. Lord, equip us and enable us to grasp fully how this works. Show us how to lean into your Spirit's presence and power in us. Lord, we long to see you do mighty work among us, in us, and through us. We desire for this church to be vibrant for the gospel. We desperately want to see the gospel advance in our community. Make us a faithful body of believers that you will use us in this way. Make your name and reputation to abound through us in this place. I pray today for that soul that is struggling apart from your salvation. I pray that sin will burden them and create hopelessness and that their emptiness and desperation will help drive them to you. May your spirit bring conviction of sin and disobedience. May your sin spirit bring a conviction regarding the gospel's truth that you will give them the gift of repentance and faith today to turn to you. Give us all ears to hear you speak. Give us hearts that are primed and hungry to receive your truth. Make us eager to obey you and apply your word to our lives. Use us, Father, to display your glory in this broken world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we began looking at Ephesians chapter 4 and we talked about that we are one in Christ. We are all the same in essence. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father over all, through all, and in all. Then Paul switches gears, and this week we're looking at our differences. He says that we are distinct from one another. Can this be true? Can we be the same and at the same time be different? That's the argument he's making. By emphasizing our sameness, he encourages respect for one another in spite of our differences. And the emphasis is on the legitimacy of our differences, and he encourages equal respect for those differences. Paul shows us two important truths in verses 7 through 16. One, it's the body of Christ, the church, the vibrant, healthy church, is made up of diverse and supernaturally gifted people. Secondly, it's made up of humble and God-honoring people. All those things are true in a vibrant and healthy church. So these truths are vital. If we're to be healthy, if we're to be vibrant, if we're to be effective in God's work. So let's unpack them together this morning. 
First of all, the church is a diverse and supernaturally gifted people. What does this mean? Well, Paul makes the connection between our oneness and our diversity. We're all different, and yet we're all one. He does this by talking about our diversity and uh, supernaturally gifted leadership. Supernaturally gifted leadership that is also diverse. He points to the apostles and the prophets. The apostles and the prophets. The apostles we know were the 12 who followed Jesus during his ministry. They were eyewitnesses. They observed what Christ was doing. They had a firsthand look and experience with all that he was doing. The prophets are those who preached in association with the apostles. Both of these are foundational gifts to establish the church. They provide the grounding, the the foundation upon which the church is established. Now there are no new apostles and prophets in the proper sense of the words in today's world. Those ended. We now rely upon the body of canonical writings that came out of their ministries, the Bible. This is why it's so important. The scriptures are so important for us. They represent this foundation as God worked through his apostles and prophets in order to establish the church. Now these men were diverse people. We're told that they were fishermen, that Paul was a trained Pharisee. He was trained to be a leader among the Judaizers, among the Jewish people, I'm sorry. The uh, Matthew was a tax collector, uh, despised by uh, people in society. They were diverse. Peter was impulsive. He was bold. We know that John was a little bit less so. He tends to be or seems to be a tender spirit. There was James and John who were called the sons of thunder. And then there's Andrew who was the passionate evangelist. Diverse, diverse people that God supernaturally gifted and empowered and used to establish the church. Then there are evangelists and pastor teachers. There's a group of gifted leaders that God gives to each generation in the church. Those that he uses to continue to stir the waters of his word and continue to lead the church in building upon the foundation that he himself has established. F.F. Bruce said the apostles, as an order of the ministry of the church, were not perpetuated beyond the apostolic age. But the various functions they discharged did not lapse with their departure but continued to be performed by others, notably the evangelists and pastors and teachers. Evangelists are particularly gifted or useful to God in making new converts. They're particularly gifted to stir us up for proclaiming the gospel. The church has long in this modern age come to ignore the evangelist. Evangelists are not brought into the church. They're not encouraged through the church to go about using the gifts that God has imparted to them, the strengths that he has developed in them. He uses evangelists to make the gospel plain 
to a lost world, to those who are trapped in sin, who have scales upon their eyes. This is the way God, this is the pattern that he has designed and that he uses to make new believers. It's not to say that evangelists are the only ones who can be used to bring lost people to Christ or that they're the only ones who should be proclaiming the gospel. Far be it from that. We all have this responsibility, and God uses us all in this way. But these evangelists are supernaturally gifted of God to be useful to the church, to advance the gospel, to proclaim this gospel to encourage and exhort us all to be bold with the gospel. And then he says he has given pastors, teachers who are shepherds. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 2, that we are to be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Shepherds. That's not a term that's familiar to most of us. We know about it with head knowledge, but we don't experience it in our culture like they did in the ancient culture. Acts 20, 28, Paul talking to, the, uh, to these uh, elders at Ephesus said to them, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Be shepherds. It means to nurture, to encourage, to, to edify, to feed them and protect them from false teaching. It is a tender, caring, and nurturing connotation. A touch here, a kind word there, a gentle prod at the appropriate time, but it also suggests a resolute strength. The shepherds were looked upon with great esteem in the day because of their uh, endurance through the difficulties of the climate severe climate changes, and putting their lives on the line to protect and guard the sheep. They were to be steadfast protecting those sheep. So a pastor teacher makes feeding the sheep a priority, feeding and protecting the sheep. All four of these gifts are characterized by teaching. In fact, John Stott believed and stated that teaching is the essential element of pastoral ministry and the greatest need of the church universal. Part of the reason that the church has become anemic in the day that we live in is because teaching the scripture is being ignored. It's being put aside for something that's more appealing. We're fulfilling God's uh, word talking to us about the end times, the latter times, when, when the people would want to bring teachers that tickle their ears, that scratch the itch that they have as a society. He said he also makes this church diverse and supernaturally gifted people by a diverse and supernaturally gifted membership. The membership, too, is supernaturally empowered by God, gifted by God to do the work of God. Differing gifts are present by Christ's authority. We are all the same. One spirit, one body, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, and yet we are all distinct. We are all different. Verse 7 says, But grace was given to each one of us. After talking about the unity in the body, he makes this clear turn. And he says, but grace was given to each one of us. 
each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Our different personalities, our different abilities, our different experiences are all gifts from God that we bring to the body. So what God has done in your life, what God has invested in you through the years is now brought to this present context, this present body for his use to be empowered by the Spirit. No one has all the gifts, all the strengths, all the abilities needed for what the church will encounter, but all together. Several years ago, I was pastoring another church, and I grew somewhat frightened when we, uh, we did an examination. We kind of checked into how people were wired, how they were put together, what their, what their desires were, what what things really moved them and motivated them, and what we found out was about 65% of the people had uh, administration as a key empowerment, gift, strength in their life. Now, you may not appreciate that, but from my perspective, you know, you know what the number one uh, thing is in an, an administrative, administratively gifted person, Right? What's that? Well, delegation's a nice way of saying it. That's right. They they thrive on being the boss. Now, if you've got a church and 65% of the people thrive on being the boss, what does that tell you? That's a potential problem, isn't it? It's a potential nightmare. But you know what? God assembled that church together. We were a mobile church. We were a church plant, and we needed lots of things done. We met in three mobile locations throughout the week. We needed all those administrative giftings and strengths and experiences and talents in order to keep the church functioning well. And God gave a spirit, his spirit, to bring all those administrative gifts together under his head and use them without it being a problem. God gives the local church what it needs in its context. He gives complementary strengths and weaknesses. We must be spirit-filled or we'll easily get on each other's nerves. It doesn't matter what the makeup of those strengths and experiences and talents and abilities are. It's real easy for people to get on each other's nerves. We live in a world that thrives on irritability, doesn't it? Why can't he or she be more like me? Why doesn't everyone see it the way I see it? It's so plain. It's so simple. Why doesn't he or she do it this way or that way? But God has made us different, and Christ apportions the gifts differently. He has the authority to do as he wills for his purpose and his glory. He knows the challenges. He knows the assignment, the task that is before us here in this context, in this location. And he has assembled the pieces, the people in this body to be his body, to be one body for him and to have all the things that we need in a complementary fashion. So this is... All these gifts are present by his authority. Different gifts also demonstrate Christ's generosity. Paul quotes from Psalm 68 here, which points to God's victory over Egypt, leading his people to Mount Zion. He won us 
and he is carrying out his plans to fill all creation with glory. That's the point Paul's making. Just like he won Israel and brought them out of Egypt and led them to this place where he would set up his throne, he is doing the same thing today. He has won us to himself through the cross and his resurrection, and now he is leading us forward and he is investing in us these gifts and abilities and strengths and weaknesses so that he might fulfill his plan to glorify his own name and fill creation as such. He points to Jesus' incarnation and condescension here. The gifts he gives to the church are not material or personality traits. The gifts he gives in reality is Christ sharing himself. Christ is in you, in me, through the presence of his Spirit. And what he has assembled here is him sharing himself with this body to make it be what he wants and desires it to be, what he needs it to be to accomplish his purposes. We are extensions of Christ's very heart and being to his people. But we must be careful. Often our broken flesh clamors to be at the, at the forefront, right? It wants to do what's pleasing to each of us, to do what we want and desire, to fulfill our preferences. So we must have the Spirit working in us, filling us, flowing through us, so that it is Christ accomplishing His purpose with His gifting. His gifts in us and through us are Him giving Himself to the church. And when we neglect, now listen carefully, when we neglect or refuse to share his gifts, it robs the church. I'm going to say that again. And I know this is meddling. It's plowing close to the corn, we would say. But when we refuse or neglect to share the gift that God has placed within you, the way that God has built you, Strengths and weaknesses, when we refuse or neglect to share those things, we run the risk of robbing the church of what God has given. We are in essence hindering God's generosity. Also, he tells us that differing gifts serve Christ's desires and purposes. Our gifts are not our own, for our own selfish pleasures and desires. We are to use them for building the body of Christ. Gifted leaders use their gifts to equip God's people for this ministry. Paul offers a very clear statement here. Diverse and spiritually gifted leaders are given to the church to equip the saints, this is their purpose, for the work of ministry, the consequences of the equipping, for building up the body. This is the overall result of leaders and saints work together. Each part of the body has an integral role each one. There's no room for anyone to sit on the bench. There is no bench when it comes to God's team. Resisting and refusing to fulfill the role diminishes the body's maturity. Each gift has triple ownership. Ours, the church's, and God's. And obviously God's is the most significant. We must steward these gifts for his purposes and his glory, which includes unifying the body, he says, as we give ourselves to stewarding God's gifts, as we lean into the diversity that God has assembled, and we do so under the guidance and power of his spirit, our unity becomes the prominent feature while our diversity remains visible. 
Can I state that again? When we do all this under the guidance and power of His Spirit, our unity becomes the prominent feature while our diversity remains visible. Not only does it include unifying the body, but it includes maturing the body. We grow up into the fullness of Christ, he says. How do you know when you've reached maturity in Christ? How do you know when you are maturing in Christ? Well, how do you know when a human being is maturing? Well, the appearance changes, right? The behavior changes. The attitudes change. They no longer look, act, think like children. For a spiritual person, for a person who is a follower of Christ, we no longer are tossed about by the tumultuous society in which we lived. We're no longer frightened by the violent waves of the culture around us. We're no longer driven off course by every new teaching, by false teaching. We're no longer influenced by these things. But we become anchored to Christ. We become dependent and people of faith resting in Christ, even though the world appears to be coming apart at the seams. The pattern of life for us is not reflecting this fallen world. Rather, he says, we speak the truth in love. And as we grow up in every way, not just one or two, but in every way into him who is the head, we conform to him and we are shaped by him. So the church is comprised, the vibrant church is comprised of a diverse and supernaturally gifted people. But a vibrant church is also comprised of a humble and God-honoring people. The church is not a building or a physical structure, is it? It's an organism comprised of living beings redeemed by Christ's blood, given new life by him. All around us we see unhealthy organizations. Some even call themselves churches. Quarreling, dividing over the winds of culture. And this happens as we fail to mature and to be unified in Christ. It's not an appealing picture of the church that we see in the world today. Paul is exhorting Ephesian believers and all believers to be what God has designed. What God has redeemed and empowered us to be. His bride, radiant and compelling in a dark world and through her to reveal his glory, grace, and goodness. It is evident that the church is to be humble and God-honoring. And that's realized as we are practicing grateful and helpful, healthy attitudes. For others' gifts, he says, contentment is available by realizing we're not intended to be alike. People do not have to be like me. Aren't you glad? But by the same token, I don't have to be like you. And that's okay. We are different. We're distinct, but we're one body. Unity amid diversity. God uses our diversity to build a stronger and effectual church body. Brian Chapel states it this way. He said, when he, Jesus, ascended, he took captivity captive and gave gifts to men. 
He made some more sympathetic than others. He made some more enduring than others. Some more adventurous than others. Some are better ramrods for organizing the efforts of many. Some are better counselors for the concerns of the individuals. Some better businessmen, some better administrators, some better youth workers, some better scholars, some better in public, and some better in private ministries. All are vital for the building up of the church, for the fullness of the purposes of Christ. And none should despise the gifts that Christ apportions, proportions by his authority, out of his generosity and for his transforming purposes. You will never be at peace and content in the church until you recognize that God has brought different kinds of people into the church both to sanctify you and to build up his church in the ways that he knows are best. We also must practice grateful and healthy attitudes for our own gifts. For our own gifts. Very often, we're not content with how God has made us. What God has invested in us. We want to be what someone else is. We can despise our own gifts and undervalue God's designs for us. God has gifted you, prepared you, purposed you for his purpose. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't seek to improve or to grow or mature. But we should not run away from how he has gifted and prepared us. We should not resist being used by him. Which brings us to our final point. The church is to be humble and God-honoring by practicing grateful and faithful actions. We do this by not neglecting others' gifts. Not neglecting or ignoring others' gifts. Encouraging and expecting others to use their gifts. There's no one in this church that can do everything necessary. I'm grateful for how God has grown us in this fashion. A plurality of leaders, elders, shepherds, gifted men. How he has called forth men who serve in this church as deacons who serve the body of Christ. But how he is working in the body as people step up and they lean into what God puts before them, utilizing the gifts and the strengths and the abilities that he has placed within each of us. It takes everyone moving together. Many different ways for God to use us and to edify and strengthen his church. And we do this by not neglecting our own gifts as well. Don't hoard your giftings. Don't hold God or his church hostage. Don't allow the enemy to convince you that you're not useful or effective. That's the Lord's prerogative. Don't withhold your gifts as if you're holding God hostage. I know no one would ever use that terminology, would we? We wouldn't say that. We wouldn't admit to that. And yet, sometimes that's what we do. Some people get upset or they get their feelings hurt and they decide, well, I'm just going to sit here and just be a spectator. That's not the kind of description that we see Paul giving of the vibrant church in these verses. One body, one spirit, one Lord, one baptism, one faith, one God and Father over all. 
You know, for the church to settle for less than what Paul describes here is to begrudge how God has planned for and shaped his people and the church. It sounds harsh, but to settle for less in many ways is to despise Christ's redemptive work and certainly his plans for his church. It's important that we rehearse and preach the glorious gospel to ourselves as well as to the lost. We do so to nurture God, honoring hopes, attitudes, and practices. One way we do this is through observing regularly the Lord's Supper together. Jesus instructed his followers to come to the table in order to remember him, to remember all that he has done, his atoning work, and his promise to return. At his table, we remember the dreadful condition in which sin has placed us, put us in bondage to sin and to death, awaiting God's judgment. But Christ condescended to live among us, to die in our place on a cross, and to rise from the dead, and to purchase new life, new resurrection life, for those who put their faith and trust in him. It's by his glorious grace that we who are diverse are claimed and made one while using our differences for his glory. At his table, we remember, we rejoice, and look forward to a glorious future in God's presence. There, our unity will be preeminent forever. And yet, our diversity will also be visible for eternity. At his table, we rehearse and encourage our commitment to live together for Christ's glory until he comes. And we do this that we might be his beautiful bride, his compelling community for all the world to see. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we are thankful for your grace and your mercy that has taken us vile and evil rebels, Lord, fallen, trapped in sin, and made us new creatures. Made us new and begun this work of conforming us perfectly to your image for all of eternity. We thank you, Lord, for the pattern, for the design of your church, the body of Christ. This incredible uh, paradox, maybe, we see of unity and diversity. We pray that, Lord, you might work in our midst, in our hearts, in our lives here at Milton Community Church. That, Lord, you would continue the great work of making us one, thriving and resting in the unity that you have provided, and Lord, at the same time, utilizing our distinctions, our diversity, for your glory and your honor. We pray this morning, Lord, as we come to the table, that you might enable us to remember, to remember the incredible sacrifice, death, burial, resurrection, atoning work for us that, 
Lord, has drawn us to you, reconciled us to you again. And that we might celebrate our oneness in Christ for your honor, for your glory. And that, Lord, we would continue to lift our eyes, our hearts upward, looking forward with great expectation to your future return and taking your children home to be perfected, Lord, forever in your presence. So as we come to your table this morning, we pray that you would search our hearts, that you would convict, Lord, of sin, that we might put away our indifference, our apathy, our sins of omission, our sins of commission, that we might be cleansed, purged afresh and anew, and that we might sense our unity in a truly supernatural way. We pray you be glorified and that you be honored. And we give you the thanks and the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. This morning as we 